0: ceiling podcast
1: smashing the class
2: ceiling
3: in this special episode of the class ceiling podcast we attended university of southampton opportunities road show the opportunities road show brought staff students, and employees together for rich discussions about students and graduates who are underrepresented in the labor market accessing opportunities. After the event, we recorded a dynamic conversation with the Right Honourable Justine Greening, whose organisation, This Is Purpose, ran the event, as well as key step Gino Graziano, Director of Widening Participation and Social Mobility at University of Southampton. Katie Gordon, our Director of Careers, Employability and Student Enterprise, and Sandeep Bandal, Vice President of Marketing for ADECO Group. Hello panel. And welcome to the Class Ceiling Podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. Hi, and welcome to episode four of the Class Ceiling Podcast. Are you ready to start? Okay, so Sandeep, what were the aims and also the format of the University of Southampton Opportunities Roadshow?
2: The um, the Deco group launched its uh, Social Value Action Plan back in 2021, and for us, the Opportunity Roadshow is the next step. Uh, in levelling up Britain and making a real impact. And alongside uh, Justin Greening and her team at the Purpose Coalition, the ADECO Group has hosted a, a series of uh, opportunity roadshows targeting cold spots uh, across Britain and focusing on regional specific issues. And we'll continue to do this throughout 2023. For us, the Southampton Roadshow, we wanted to talk about social mobility with a particular focus on a project both the ADECO Group and the Purpose Coalition have been working on called Open Door which takes form of an online platform with the aim of connecting students in social mobility cold spots at our target universities, but also with our target clients from Purpose Coalition and Open Door. At the Southampton Roadshow, we have keynote speeches from myself, Professor Deborah Gill, Justin Greening and also Katie Gordon, who's on this podcast. Apart from getting our own messages across, our key aim was to really hear from students, faculty members and Southampton University and employers who were also in attendance. There were kind of three key areas that we focused on and essentially what we tried to do was get around to every single group. So I had 30 minute rotational group sessions. The topics were barriers and solutions outreach and access and finally structures and support and I must say the event itself was fantastic and great interaction from all who attended.
3: Fabulous everybody who attended the event gave such positive feedback and there was a real buzz around the service and back into with the widening participation team as well we thought it was a really great event.
4: As Sandeep has mentioned, there was breakout discussion groups throughout the day. Katie, what were some of the student, staff and employer themes of the discussion groups?
5: So I chaired the outreach and access discussion group and it was just super. There were so many contributions and from students, from staff, from employers. And I guess if I gave you an example for each of the three, for the employers, there was some really groundbreaking good practice. One example from Enterprise where they get 40,000 applications a year and they they handle them all manually and they provide feedback to all. Now, if that isn't an example of fantastic practice, and it also shows that however big an employer you are with, however many applications, you can do it if the will is there and the determination. Then for the students, what was really interesting was listening to employers talking about how they felt they had good practice and fair and open recruitment processes. And then a number of students talked about the need or the desire to have more options in terms of the assessment method. And that wasn't just for those who have really obvious acknowledged barriers. So it was really thinking around some people cope better with assessment centres, some people cope better with uh, video interviews as opposed to in person. And would it be possible to have an option and you could choose? And what I think is interesting is how many employers were going, "Hmm, Hmm, that's an interesting idea. And we're thinking how they could make that work. And so long as the processes are seen to be equally rigorous, they would be seen to be fair. And then finally, from staff's point of view, I did see a lot of my team scribbling things down. And there was a lot of feeling that career services can support social mobility by asking the questions around good recruitment practice. So what they're doing is in the process of supporting employers to recruit students, is help employers to make their practice better. And that could be through questions like asking whether they had signed the Social Mobility Pledge and highlighting what employers have done this or have signed this to students when they're in process of recruitment. And this is something that could play into the actual app that was the point of discussion that day. So huge amounts of ideas. I've just given you some highlights today.
3: That's brilliant. You know, apart from informing the core aim of this event, which was the development of the open door app as Sandeep has mentioned earlier why is bringing students and employers and university staff together in this way a good idea?
1: I, for so many reasons to, to be frank so I, I mean certainly from our point of view the way we do widening participation and social mobility at Southampton uh, is based on a number of principles and wh- one of the core ones is what we call two-way dialogue we never want to do essentially widening participation activity to students we want to do it with them we want to learn from them we, we we appreciate we don't have all the answers and we don't like to make assumptions so that was really baked into this event I felt and certainly in the discussions that I was listening to and part of that insight and inspiration was really like crackling you could really feel it and it was really nice to see that some of the employers were really taking on board what the students were saying, that you could see the learning was taking place like in front of your eyes. It was really great to see. I also think that particularly when you're talking about students from underrepresented groups, trust can be a really big issue, particularly in institutions. They have seen, for example, some of the unfairness that happens within the systems that that they might be operating in and, and how other people who are more privileged get ahead. So I think going some way to 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 build that trust I think is utterly crucial not only for the the purpose of, of the open door app but I think also more broadly for how we engage with these students and again you could see the confidence growing in the students when the, they were being listened to that people were interested in what they were saying which was I think really great and then I also think raising the profile it was clear that this event was a real star studied affair, do you know what I mean? I think it brought with it a lot of cachet, a lot of kudos, which was great not only for the profile of this work within the institution, within the wider social mobility community, but also for the students themselves and seeing themselves in um, amongst that, that company I think was really beneficial to them. So enormous benefits I think way above and beyond the superficial purpose of the event.
3: Well thanks Gino and I think your rapport can be built so much more robustly in person can't it and I agree I could see those students gain that confidence and the venue helped the fabulous Turner Sims concert hall.
4: Sandeep at the Opportunities Roadshow did you manage to find fresh insights into making careers such as at the ADECO group more accessible to students from a wider range of backgrounds and how important do you think events like these are into gaining that insight?
2: Gosh, every time I attend one of these Opportunity Roadshows I'm kind of truly Humbled by the passion, the the feedback, the kind of focus and thirst for change from students. And Southampton definitely didn't disappoint from from that perspective. It was really focused on how they can really give us their feedback on what we can change, what we can deliver. And some of those kind of points, and I could go on for days talking about it because I scribbled down so many notes. But some of the key points were students were overwhelmed by the opportunities that were going to be put in front of them, particularly via mailing lists and finding it really difficult to narrow those down. And one of their asks was to be, you know, be more specific and, and personalised opportunities to students. So that was a real big ask for job boards out there to so say, don't send us everything. Um, allow us to be much more focused on what we really want, what our needs are, what our requirements are, not just professionally, but equally personally. And, and particularly on that last point, another example of it that really came out, were jobs are too traditional in terms of their positioning or their advertising. Um, such as full-time jobs, meaning 35 hours or 37 and a half hours, depending on which company you work for. Uh, But having the ability to recognise there may be people with disabilities that cannot work 35 hours, but can work slightly less, but they're not looking for part-time, but they're looking for a slightly different work pattern and a work lifestyle. And how employers should really think about, you know, managing the communication, Managing their advertising and then the value proposition, particularly around how they push jobs out to market, particularly for this sort of cohort. And I think that is a really, really powerful point. And a couple more, if I may. One that really kind of shone to light was FAQs, frequently asked questions. Most students mentioned this, in fact, and I think it was a fantastic point. And this was not really around um, the dates of uh, an application or when uh, a graduate scheme closes. This is more really around. What is it like to go there on day one into employment? Should they really dress? What does smart casual actually mean? And, you know, do they have somewhere to take their lunch and actually put it? And it's all those things that potentially cause you a bit of nervousness or anxiety. The kind of night before your first day and your first few weeks within an, in, in a new job, particularly if you haven't been in the world of work before. One that really stuck out to me was the quote, I want to talk to somebody like me and this was based on from a student I listened to as one of those breakout groups and I thought it was really powerful to hear. The challenge to the employers here was really how diverse are you and can you really offer me what I need and have you had the opportunity to interact with individuals like me and can you offer me the right training, support, progression, ultimately a culture where students feel accepted and feel comfortable to do their job. And another point related to that is Does the board reflect the diversity, the equality, inclusion, messaging from that particular organisation? Essentially, can students see themselves at the top table or very least be inspired or supported by those that are currently there? And there were many more really around, you know, more of a personalised approach, um, more coaching and development directly for employers, getting more insight into what day one in the work environment would look like. But there were so many things I took away, but those are just probably the kind of top five or six.
3: Now, it sounds like you've got a lot of rich insights on the day, Sandeep. Katie, why are events like the Opportunities Roadshow important?
5: So I would say that any opportunity to get employers and students and indeed staff together are incredibly helpful just because it's about that meeting of minds and it's sharing and having new insights. I do think also that the buzz around an event like this and particularly activities like this podcast, which then promote to a wider world what actually happened is all about encouraging people who felt that buzz on the day to continue to engage. And if people watch it and go, I wish I'd been part of that. So it's part of the rolling programme, because I think it's so important that all institutions, however large or small, and however many students with disadvantaged backgrounds they have, should get involved, as as we want the whole of society and all our institutions to be driving towards the social mobility goals and the levelling up goals. Particularly this event, though, because it was about an app, and I don't know about you, but I often find with apps that when you're using them, you think, God, I wish they'd actually spoken to some users before they started launching it. Because somebody can have a bright idea, but if they don't come and talk to the potential users, then it's not going to be half as good. And I think what I really welcomed from this event was it was so open. It was all about thinking through ideas that can help make this app the best it could possibly be. And we found so much more activity in relation to tech in the last couple of years because of COVID. Lots of graduate recruiters radically changed their recruitment processes because of COVID. And that was all very positive. But uh, many, many students did have more difficulty if they didn't access up-to-date technology or didn't have a quiet space at home to engage in online learning, or they had low levels of confidence about being able to speak up online, which is often more difficult than when you're in the room and you know people. So those hidden consequences are difficult. And so developing a platform that can connect those from disadvantaged backgrounds with recruiters who actively want to support social mobility should help bring many more new graduate recruiters into contact with a wider range of potential applicants. That's what we want. That's what the app's all about. And this day was all about encouraging people to speak up and say what they thought. So I was really impressed from so many viewpoints with this event.
4: That's amazing. Thank you. So this is about a little bit about the level Up Agenda as well. So, of course, the level Up Agenda was a key part of Boris Johnson's campaign and, of course, his work as Prime Minister. Now Boris Johnson is no longer Prime Minister, we've seen a complete lack of the levelling up agenda in conversation. Um, If we think about the mini-budget, the now U-turned mini-budget, I should say, and Liz Truss's own campaign and promises since she got the premiership, how do you think events like these can contribute to continuing the levelling up agenda and almost surviving it?
1: I'm glad you asked me that, and I'm glad you phrased it like that as well, because I think I I had reason to be thinking about this recently in the semantics of what I do. Like, you know, my job title is Widening Participation in Social Mobility. We talk about levelling up today. And I kind of think that what we're achieving or what we're trying to achieve almost transcends those like political kind of buzz terms, if you like. Like you say, that levelling up became a bit of a a catchall for A lot of stuff that was not that clearly defined and and through the levelling up goals actually we've got a clearer distinction on what that might be and how we might help people to navigate some of these social inequalities that we've got in the country so i think that you you're right it has like that the terminology has kind of slipped off the agenda over the last few months but i see certainly this event that we're talking about the the app that we're discussing and our broader work in this area as almost flying above those kind of political concepts, if you like, it's the right thing to do. And I think we would all do it in any case. I think practically the event really helped to achieve or or support some of those ambitions through things like information, providing information for students that might not otherwise have it, opportunities to engage with employers and university staff, networking opportunities which otherwise wouldn't have been there and also really clear advice and guidance through that that uh, engaging with that event so I think practically it supported those ambitions but then I think there was a wider a a wider support for the 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 concept of, of social mobility if you like through things like showcasing the students' insights and and giving the opportunity for employers to see that students from underrepresented backgrounds have really clear, very intelligent, very sharp analysis of this type of thing. And uh, and again, I think that links to the confidence piece we were talking about earlier, which in itself is a really good strategic benefit here too. And I think just being able to provide a better representation of uh, the student body at a university like Southampton, gives a really clear message about what we want to achieve in this area and how employers can engage with it. So I think it supported the agenda, whatever you want to call it. We know it's about, you know, social justice or social advancement in some way. And I think it supported it practically and uh, strategically to a really high level.
3: Thanks, Gino. And uh, I noticed that the student demographic was what perhaps wouldn't be perceived as traditional Southampton students, and that made my heart sink. It was it was a, such a, a great room to be in. Sandeep, what do you think was achieved on the day from an employer point of view?
2: From Looking at the three sessions, the breakout sessions, uh, they were taking many notes. They were very interactive in each one of those breakout sessions. In fact, even directly asking questions and doing a bit of a takeover, because I think they were so Taken aback by the passion and the, the kind of voice that the students from Southampton had, it was fantastic. And they were hearing directly from future talent and I could really see the value they were taking away from that. As some of the examples, you know, food for thought for them is really around managing the cost of recruitment versus managing the value of recruitment. You know, we've heard that many of the employees in attendance were recruiting in hundreds, if not thousands of people at an entry level basis. And ultimately, costs can become a bit of a barrier to making sure that you have the fit for purpose process in place. But the value of recruitment is hugely important. And ensuring that you've got the right pathways as part of the recruitment process for everybody is is really, really key. And, you know, they listened that there needs to be a review. There needs to be more personalisation, needs to be more mentorship. There needs to be more practice rounds in the um, interview and assessment process. Equally, one of the things that I really took away from it was around social media. Students do not want to be um, spoken to about careers and jobs via social media. That's their safe space to speak to loved ones and friends. And that's what they want to do through that. So please do not serve me jobs is what they were saying. And again, you could see every single employer going, oh, OK, right. OK, we'll uh, stop spending our money there and, and, and go, uh, go elsewhere. The importance around storytelling, I think, was really key as well going back to one of my earlier points around being work ready, understanding more about the employer and the working environment by hearing more from people who've actually gone through that is something that really came across. And employers really spoke to me afterwards whilst we were having a coffee to say that is something they really took away. It's really about how do they kind of enhance the employer value proposition? How do they tell a bit more of a deeper story? I think that was really, really good as part of the, the, the whole process and, uh, Ultimately, I think they learned a lot from the University of Southampton and the students in attendance.
4: That's amazing. Thank you. Katie, obviously you work in careers at the university. From the university's perspective, what do you think was achieved from the day in terms of supporting students and graduates to access the labour market?
5: Well, I think certainly, again, I refer to my team scribbling down the ideas and that we've talked about quite a few of them already because it was about thinking through from students' point of view how we can best support students in practice or to practice how to navigate the graduate labour market better. And in terms of thinking through what is the lack of confidence, where is that confidence, the lack of confidence coming from, really pinpointing the nitty gritty of some of the granular detail. And that will mean us adapting our sort of coaching practices to support students when they're applying. But also in relation to how we influence employers to challenge themselves in their recruitment practice to be even more fair, open and accessible. And the employers who were there did have fair, open and accessible practices. But what was really interesting was watching how open they were to learning and thinking, oh, could we go even further and kind of sparking off each other as well, which is back to why these kind of events are important. So, in fact, we've already introduced, I was just talking to my team this morning at the careers fair we've been running today, and we've already introduced questions on sustainability to our engagement with employers. And that was something that somebody had raised as part of uh, the discussion around values and around, you know, how, how would that manifest itself? So I'm really pleased about even that particular thing. The other is in relation to the app, I think we definitely have contributed to the design of the app. I mean, the devil's in the detail and also in whether we've been listened to in that event. I'm sure we have Um, because a better app would be another good tool to support disadvantaged students to access opportunities more effectively. I can absolutely see a vision where if we had this kind of app, it isn't all about apps, but in particular because that's what this event was about, If there were an app that really struck the right market, where most employers who are graduate recruiters signed up, then we'd be able as universities to be really pushing that to students. And if if the app's well designed, the app's got the right support, we're able to embed that into our practices, then we'd be probably encouraging more and more students to go to it. And it kind of then becomes a virtuous circle. You don't want students to only think these are the only employers I can apply to. But it's a bit of a reassurance that if you come on this app, you know that every employer will have signed the Social Mobility Pledge or will be doing specific things to be open, fair and accessible. Then I think that can only be a positive thing. I I think it's only a few months away, according to what Sandeep had told us before and Justine. So it'd be lovely, a lovely Christmas present for all our disadvantaged students if we could have this kind of app ready in time for uh, the spring recruitment round.
3: That was my favourite part of the day, that students getting the message directly from employers that we're looking for you, we value you, rather than we have to convince these people that we're good enough. I just love that dynamic change. Um, Gino, given our excellent, award-winning and growing social mobility offer this perspective on current students and graduates, has University of Southampton opened up new ideas and opportunities?
1: I I think so. I mean I mean I think we're part of a movement if I'm honest. There's some really really great work going on across the sector which is amazing to see having having sort of worked in the sector for so long. It almost feels like we've got to a tipping point in the last few years which when all of a sudden there's a flood of great activity and great work happening which is amazing because I do feel that we are part of an ecosystem that includes employers and it includes uh, schools and it includes an entire sort of system around young people and students which is bigger than the sum of its parts and i think we've all got something to contribute to that and the more we can work together to bring that in the better the end outcome will be for for the students so i think we're part of this movement and i'm i'm really proud actually of what southampton has managed to contribute to that and i think we we do it for our students so so we've 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 spent the last couple of years bringing together a lot of our projects new and old existing projects into the ignite southampton umbrella which is a really targeted support program for students from underrepresented groups but we also are more broader than that as well so for example we've set up the social mobility network with this which this podcast is a, is a spin off from for staff and students, and we've also pledged to to set up the Social Mobility Index as well to to, to understand the backgrounds of our staff from a social point of view. So I think we are going above and beyond what's expected of us. And and as you you very um, kindly pointed out in your intro to the question, you know, it's been recognised by the Social Mobility Awards this year, where we received the highly commended and gold award. But as I say, it's kind of part of a wider movement within the higher education sector which I'm really thrilled about because you don't want to be an island in the middle of a vast sea where you can't see the end of. You can see it developing and you can see the opportunities and the chances and the outcomes for, for students from underrepresented groups getting better and more available which is, which is fantastic. So yeah it's just great to be part of that movement I think.
4: Thank you so much for that. So you've already touched on hoping that the Open Door app won't make students or graduates feel like, oh, maybe these are your only employees for me. What do you think can be done to reach out to employees that don't have an existing interest in social mobility to get them to join up, sign the social mobility pledge?
5: So I can only talk in the sense of specifically what can happen in relation to universities, because I think what we have at universities, which obviously schools and colleges don't really have, is the employer engagement networks that we all um, support and try to build. And so one of the ways I'm really keen that we support this kind of agenda and all the other different kinds of agendas that there are is by us asking and influencing employers as we work with them to change their recruitment practices. So simply by adding in a question around the social mobility pledge or saying, do you know about the app? Career services and universities are a brilliant ambassador for this kind of engagement. So the key for me is getting us on board, because if we're convinced, we'll be the best salespeople, as it were. Not that this is, you know, a selling point, but you know what I mean? So I think we could do a huge amount to support the middle people, to encourage that engagement to grow and if you could get ADCAS on board the professional body for University Career Services so that we were all thinking about that across the whole of the UK that would be a huge win. Could do it through the Institute of Student Employers as well who really represent a lot of major graduate recruiters. You could do it through Universities UK although that's slightly further away so I reckon University Career Services, ADCAS and the Institute of Student Employers well, that is simply in the higher education market. I'm not as sure about the networks that you could build. There will be other similar networks you could harness, I think. But I also think using people like Justine Greening, who clearly has a real commitment to this, as a high profile champion, that's also the way to get people involved. And that's about influencing and seeking out those politicians and maybe celebrities, people who are really supportive and make use of their social network and sort of cachet as well.
4: So this is to everyone, how should employers and universities be working together to influence government policy and making sure the values that we've discussed today go all the way to the top and can be implemented into policy to become a standard across businesses?
5: Could I go first and suggest that The most important thing is to think about how employers and universities should be reinforcing each other's messages and basically singing from the same song sheet because we're backing each other up. And I think that comes from joint research as well, robust research that makes it hard for governments to deny the evidence that's come up. And we're both reinforcing it through our networks, through Universities UK, through AGCAS, the Professional Body for Career Services in, in universities, the Institute of Student Employers, which covers a lot of graduate recruiters. That is the way, I think, one of the biggest ways to make it much harder for governments to push back. The one other thing I would say is by working together to influence political parties through their conferences. So way before the mad ideas come to be government policy or in manifestos, the point at which you can influence and discuss and have events and workshops with MPs, would-be MPs, the people in think tanks, so that at the ideas generation stage, those key messages are being fed in. And I think although that's a longer lead time to get us to a point where we can influence government policy, that I think is the
1: most effective way to do it for the long term. The main things I jotted down really was evidence, like like Katie said, and I think being able to provide a, a kind of a good argument to persuade policymakers on on this area, I mean, I do worry sometimes that widening participation and social mobility as a as a kind of concept falls down a bit of a political wedge. It gets kind of bent towards whichever political ideology um, is is in charge. So, I, I mean, I would like to again, as I said earlier, about my answer to to the, the the agendas and so on. I'd quite like to find a way or figure out a way for this work to fly above those politics if you like but that might be being a bit high-minded I do think the strength of of, again as as Sandeep was saying earlier storytelling and experience and and joining up what Katie was saying again evidence and and being able to present that in a persuasive way is absolutely
2: key. From my point of view I think we've spoken about open door quite a lot on this and that itself will be evidence-based so one of the key things that we'll be taking from open door is one adoption to experience in three data and data will tell us the interaction the areas where people are seeing value what they are using the most and ultimately feedback is a gift and and that's definitely what open door will have as part of its setup is to really learn from all users be it universities employers or, or students and job seekers alike to tell us what they would like to change it's it's a platform that's built around collaboration by listening to people And ultimately, that will not stop once it starts. And I I truly believe once we have the platform up and running, it will itself be a movement and a voice back to policymakers, back to government to say, look, hey, we've done it ourselves. And now we need your support. More of this, please, in a slightly different way and more support in many other areas that can ultimately impact some of the objectives that we're trying to reach. And, you know, if you look at our... Unemployment rate right now is very low. It's very healthy. You could you can even s- suggest that talent scarcity is is on, on the rise significantly. The inactivity of our workforce, particularly our younger demographic, is high. And this is all the things that we're kind of seeing at the back of COVID. So there is a lot of work to do. And there are a lot of hidden challenges that lie beneath that we all need to deal with. But I truly believe something such as Open Door can actually start to become a bit of a Conduit to, to making those things happen.
3: Thank you for being such an insightful panel and illuminating what happened at University of Southampton Opportunities Roadshow.
4: Yeah, thank you so much for that. You all gave some really good answers. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Thanks all. Thank you for asking. Yeah.
3: Good afternoon, Justine, and thank you so much for offering your time this afternoon. Yes,
4: welcome to episode four of our Class Ceiling podcast. We're gonna kick off with our first question. I'm
0: ready.
3: Okay, so our podcast is called The Class Ceiling. We we talk a lot about class. Was class an issue for you growing up, Justine?
0: I think it probably was actually, in the sense that no one chooses where they start, no one picks where they start, and actually I think. It does shape your life in a sense. That's why I'm campaigning on social mobility because, you know, people who tend to start in working-class backgrounds tend to stay in working-class backgrounds. We're in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. And who is it hitting? It's hitting people who are at the lower end of the income scales, but they're almost certainly from families themselves that were at the lower income scales. And that's the whole cycle that we want to break. So class shouldn't matter, but it does and that's what I want to try and change. And when you were growing up, what, how did you notice class? How did it
3: become on your radar? When did you kind of wake up to those di- kind of differences?
0: I think it was when I arrived here at Southampton University and I met my first peers from private school, public school. As that was confusing for a start. I just remember thinking I thought it was a bit weird that there were some children who weren't in normal schools as I would have said and I used to almost think I wonder what it's like being kind of taken out from your local community school and put in a different one and I much preferred knocking around at Herringthorpe primary school in Oak and Oakwood comprehensive and I hadn't met any of those people till I got here and and then I realized actually they were a lot like me but maybe they had a different take on stuff you know because they'd had a totally different start to mine
4: this is a question that we like to ask everyone and it relates to what you are saying. What does the term social mobility mean to you? How do you relate to the term? And can you tell us about your own social mobility
0: journey? So social mobility to me is about having equality of opportunity. And that means that it shouldn't matter where you're starting. It should be your talent and your effort that allow you to be able to open doors for yourself and there's lots of things we need to do to make sure Britain becomes a country with equality of opportunity. The status quo is it's not. And almost it's, it's like a tradition in Britain that we don't have equality of opportunity. It is for a lot of other countries around the world. They look at ours and think we were the archetypal, you know, class-driven hierarchical society. But just because it's been like that in the past, it doesn't have to be like that in the future. We get to choose and my social mobility journey was a long one, wasn't it? You know, I, I start in this relatively normal working class family in Rotherham, going to my local schools, and I end up in Cabinet, improbably. And I never would have dreamt that I'd have got right up to that top table in British politics. And, and so the big difference, though, on class is, in a sense, I'm there, yet my ambition when I was growing up in Rotherham was I wanted to be the first in my family to get to university and I'm really proud that it was Southampton that I came to because it's a university that utterly changed my life for the better and yet I was sat on at the cabinet table across from somebody who would later become prime minister and his ambition when he was 10 was to be world king and I think there's nothing right or wrong in that but it tells you almost about our relative senses of where we could get to in life that's all and it's changing that that i i want to do with a lot of my social mobility work to, to not just help people have high aspirations for the sake of it but actually to have high aspirations because that's realistic that this is a country where they can get to the top if that's what they want to do that important to say we want people to have success on their own terms it's not just about getting to the top but it is about being able to go through a path on life that is your choice and not having barriers put in in your way because you start further down the ladder than others
3: so given that what is your vision for a leveled up society and what motivated you to create the
0: 14 leveling up goals my vision is where where you come from really doesn't matter and that you are judged on who you are as a person you know what you stand for and how hard you're willing to work and and that actually we revel in that that we revel in the fact that we're a country with loads of really different people and that's a good thing and i think it will give us a confidence as a country to be able to succeed but also i would love it to be able to reinvent ourselves not just in our own eyes but in the eyes of a wider world i'd love to be able to go back to some of those countries that i used to visit when i was development secretary and and really have them see us almost not as this former empire former colonial power but actually see us as something really different in the future which is possibly that first country that got to grips with being a place where you could succeed on your own t- terms wherever you started and, and I, no one's cracked that it's not like there's some other country out there that's done it and we now need to catch up we've got more ingrained weak social mobility if I can put it like that but isn't that exactly the reason why we should pioneer and crack it first
3: yeah and I think you put it like that because that is the truth and um given we're in the situation we're in at the moment why do you think graduates from non-traditional backgrounds who want a better phrase underrepresented in the labor market very often earn less in their first graduate role and how can employers signing up to the social mobility pledge help overcome this
0: yes and i'm conscious i didn't answer your other question on leveling up goals so you're right i mean i graduated with a first class honors degree in economics but i think probably would be one of those stats and and It's down to fewer connections, probably less knowledge about what careers are out there. The fact also then that the people who have the opportunities, in other words, the companies, sometimes just get their talent from the same places. And that can be a really narrow talent pool. And that may or may not include people from me. I remember getting to a final job interview with a big merchant bank in London and basically they asked me about why I hadn't been on a gap year. And I was too embarrassed to really say, well, I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford it. Couldn't afford to not only travel around the world, but probably not earn money for a year. And, and, and in the end, I remember him saying, well, I don't think you've really got a very wide world view. So I didn't get the job. I didn't really feel like I fitted in there. And in the end, they went bust because they were called bearings. Um, of course, what I did spend my year doing rather than a gap here was right here at Southampton University doing a lot of research into attitudes towards risk and risk perception and of course anyone who knows history will know that bearings went bank because they had a rogue trader and probably they could have done with somebody with more expertise on risk management but there you go uh, so we're getting companies to do plans on social mobility they've all done a plan on planet and I'm saying to them do a plan on people the levelling up goals you asked me about are my framework where I've broken down what constitutes levelling up, like what are the things we have to do to make this happen? We can all talk about social mobility, but that's not the same as doing it. Britain's debate is how do we do it? So there are 14 levelling up goals. Some are education. Some are about the fact we need people to connect up to opportunity. That's advice. That's experience. Some of them are about companies being open on recruitment, fair on their progression, and some are about other stuff – whether it's health and wellbeing, digital divide, entrepreneurship skills that really change whether or not you can make the most of yourself. And we're getting all the businesses to focus on the goals that make the most difference to them and that they can really have impact on. And I'm really enjoying it. So Justine, you have a lot of experience of Parliament, of course,
4: being an MP and holding various cabinet positions, including Minister for Women and Equalities. What do you think can be done to encourage more working-class, state-educated people into parliamentary politics?
0: Well, I think politics needs to change a lot, to be honest. In a weird way, you've got this two-party system, and they both, to some extent, represent these big networks, these big power networks. So you've got one which is Labour, which is, you know, union networks. You've got one which is the Conservatives, that I was obviously part of, which probably traditionally t- tends to have more privileged networks, And the point is, what if you're an ordinary person (laughs) that isn't part of either, which is most of us? What if you don't want to be involved with a union? What if you aren't from a more privileged background? And so actually politics does need to change because you shouldn't have to become part of those networks to be able to really be in the system and progress in it. And so I think we do need quite a lot of political change. It involves people starting, and I would always recommend... Just get involved, whether it's in civil society, because politics for me is about making a change, but it doesn't have to be formal politics. I didn't get involved in the Conservatives at Southampton University, to be perfectly honest. I just remember being totally put off by student politics um, here. It just wasn't my thing. So I didn't really get involved until several years later. But whatever you do on whatever terms, yeah, get involved, do civil society stuff, become a local counsellor maybe, um, become an activist on things you really care about. Everyone can have an impact, particularly on driving social mobility. It doesn't have to be, quote-unquote, formal politics. You could you could become somebody who's a bit of a policy person, let's face it. If you're at Southampton University, you're right in the middle of a whole load of brilliant thinkers. So it may be a thinking thing you need to do, not necessarily a doing thing. Do you think education can be the great social leveler? Yeah, I do, because I think... It's absolutely necessary. It's not sufficient. We know that. You talked about that statistic earlier, that even if you've got that top degree, somebody on your course who's done less can go on and earn more. And so, yes, education is the great leveller, and it's the one thing, I think, for government that we really need to understand is there's a lot of the jigsaw pieces on levelling up, a lot of these levelling up goals that the rest of Britain can help fix, employers but there are some that really do come down to investment and government and getting the right policies and i think that's a big thing that at some stage in 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 our future we will absolutely have to make sure that we nail and it's it's more than just resources if we could buy our way to a socially mobile britain i think i think that would have been done it's it's very much about societal change and attitudes changing as well that combines them with a smart plan on investment.
3: I, I think, given what you just said, it'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts on the most recent State of the Nation report from the Social Mobility Commission.
0: Well, what are the headlines that you felt were the most important?
3: I think the headlines that were most prevalent were about maybe the working classes needing to have less aspiration.
0: Oh, you're talking about that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just feel that one of the challenges on the whole debate on social mobility is it does get quite politicised, and I saw that. And, you know, Catherine Bilba Singh had said "Oh, also another thing that I was like, what? Um, When she talked about girls and STEM and, you know, maybe girls just don't really like mathsy stuff. (laughs) And I think almost you need to try... I think we all need to try and almost not get taken down a bit of a rabbit hole on that, if I'm honest, because I could do a million speeches on social mobility and all of that and I actually stepped out of parliament because I decided that I needed to do less debates in a way like that and more practical stuff I just wanted to drive change and so I think I understand maybe the point that she was saying but in a sense for me people end up with low aspirations because that's realistic. Do you see what I mean? It's a reflector of the environment they're in. I, I think and that's that, what we yeah, need to change: is I, the environment that they're in. So people have high aspirations because they can get places.
3: I think the headlines picked up on something that was perhaps unnecessary because mm-hmm. some of our feedback in our social mobility network has been that. Our members, who are students, feel very negatively about their parents' occupations being seen as low aspiration. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And, and actually, interestingly, I was in a meeting the other day where someone was saying, "Oh, I didn't want to end up working in a shop." And actually, I was thinking, "Well, first of all, my very first job I had was at Morrison's supermarket, and I actually learnt a lot from doing it. And secondly, these companies have great careers. Well, Aldi and Little are the highest <laughs> um, graduate scheme." Um, yeah. salaries. So part of this is almost about not having these preconceptions. A lot of the work I'm doing now and, and why we were here um, in Southampton today doing this Opportunity Roadshow is to start to break down those barriers of those misconceptions, I think, that I would have had as a graduate. There are some companies that I would have never have thought about working with just because I, I thought, oh, I don't like the industry. But actually, I'm wrong. But, but who was around me to say I think you should think again about that. No one. And so what I want to do with the work we're doing now and all my social mobility work is I've got loads of really great employers who are wanting to change, who are becoming more open. But I also know they're often ones I'd never thought of going to work at, and I should have done. So what we're doing is bringing them here to Southampton. We're looking at how we can connect everyone up so that they take a fresh look at some of these companies, and in my mind, it's not just blue-chip companies. There are some companies on values who are really blue-chip on values. Those are the ones I think we want people working for. And I want to race to the top. I want these great companies on social mobility to get great talent. I want companies that don't care about things like social mobility to really lose out because... They're not going to win if they don't open up to the wider talent pool. And I see what I'm doing now as helping that talent pool connect up with smart companies that have realised Britain's missing out by not using all of its talent.
4: Do you think it would be beneficial to intervene earlier, such as in primary and secondary schools, to help children realise their potential and encourage them into top-level careers? As you've touched on, children from state schools, especially more deprived ones, may not hold such high aspirations because they haven't been taught they can. As you put it, king of the world versus just hoping to even get into university.
0: How are you meant to aim for an opportunity that you've no idea exists? So I totally agree. So there are life chances gaps that open up literally from the word go. So we know that probably, I'll probably get this stat wrong, but about 40% of that gap is opened up by the time you're five. And you're turning up at school maybe without quite the level of vocabulary that other children are. And funnily enough, you probably don't quite understand what your teachers are saying. You're probably not necessarily quite as talkative and as able to form friendships with, with other classmates. And so it really goes from there. So part of it is core knowledge and skills. Like literally, do I know what I need to? But there's another big part of it that you sort of referred to in a way, which is everything else I need to know. Like my wider skills, am I confident? But even do I have this roadmap? an opportunity that is helping me navigate where I need to go and, and maybe do I have a mentor I didn't I've never had a mentor but if you then don't have a family normally all of us ask our parents when we're a younger person for advice but when I was asking my parents about where I should go to university I literally remember being in the kitchen and my mum going I, I, we can't help you love because we just just don't know and and that's not because they didn't want to but it was just a frame of reference. I think there were times maybe when I asked my parents for advice and I didn't necessarily get good advice because they would tell me to play it safe because that's what they had needed to do in their lives. They couldn't. So I remember when I said I was going to run for parliament, my mum was like, but what about your job? What if it doesn't work out? And I said, well, first of all, I've got a good career, so I'd always be able to go back to it. And secondly, it might work out. But in a sense, everyone's trying to find their best advice that they can get from people. But actually, I think being able to have a wider circle that you can draw on really, really matters. And and, and doing that earlier. So you grow up with a wider sense of opportunity than I did, perhaps. But I have to say, it was when I came here and started doing my degree and started meeting really different people. That's the first time I almost had an explosion of sense of a wider world, and I, I left university in Southampton a really different person in terms of getting... It was the first time I had a sense of me against my peers, and I, and I remember thinking, oh, I think I can make some of my life, I, I think I can go somewhere here. The point you made about your parents not wanting you to run for parliament? Well, no, they weren't, they weren't, it wasn't that they didn't want me to. I think they were just worried about me, like, what if it doesn't work? Everybody wants their child to make a next step that's the right one. And it was obviously risky. I mean, most people don't get elected for starts, start. <laughs> so she was worried about, well, what if you've packed in your job? And, and of course, I didn't pack in my job, did I? I, I did them both right up until three weeks before... The election, do you see what I mean? And, and and I did end up leaving. I was employed by Centrico, mainly because I just thought I'd had this, this is such a monumental experience of running for parliament. I thought, I'm not just going to go back in and turn off the out-of-office, you know, email message and then go back to life as if none of this had happened. So I just thought I was ready for a change by then. But I just think everyone's trying their best to give you good advice, but they've only ever got their frame of reference, that's all.
4: I think that's interesting because in my experience as well... Coming from a working class background, when I told my dad I was going to university, he said, oh, well done. Then he asked me what I was studying. I said politics and he said, oh, I think it shows that a career in politics seems so out of our reach. Maybe that it's not taken as seriously as a career path in this environment because it just seems so unattainable for us.
0: Yeah, I remember when I ran for parliament, someone else in my family saying, do you think you're up to it? And it was someone who really loved me. I'm really close. But it was their natural response because it was not something anyone in our family would ever do. And I remember saying, well, why shouldn't I do it? Like, why not me, Mm -hmm. was my point to them. And actually, as it turned out, you know, they had a scrapbook with every single, you know, story in the paper that they religiously cut out right the way through my career because they were so proud of what I'd done. But it is that grounding that really does have an impact. And and it's your your social norm, like what's normal for you? and And the further you get out of it, the harder it can feel for people. And I think there's a big issue on social mobility about a bit of vertigo almost. Some people call it imposter syndrome. But actually, I think it's more, there's more than that. It's about the fact that actually... When you get on your journey, it's quite hard for you and your family because you're going down a path that they can't always relate to and yet you sort of want to talk about it. But that's not always as easy. It's as simple as that. There's a frame of reference that that gets harder to kind of match. And I don't think anyone's really ever thought about that or even evidenced it. I don't think anyone's ever talked about how... You manage, if you're me and I'm in cabinet and I'm having a conversation with my mum, like can't even begin to imagine what my day's like. You know, the how was your day at work conversation when your daughter's a cabinet minister is like a million miles away from the rest of my family. And so, you know, to the extent that often it's your family that's there for your support, I think it's harder for everyone when, in a way they can't always relate to what you're doing so
3: much. I totally agree with you on imposter syndrome, this kind of, a pseudo um scientific term for something wrong in the individual it's the narrative outside is saying you don't belong here you're going to feel like an imposter it's not it's not a real disease is it you know it's a societal no no, and it's just
0: more um your expectations of what you thought you might be doing and then you turn out you're doing a lot more in like crikey exactly i hope i can nail this one and generally you can but um it's just a bit of anxiety that comes with it in a way Social class is unfortunately not yet a protected characteristics under the Equality Act 2010. Do you think it should be? That's a really good question. I think my answer is it shouldn't have to be, and you'd need to define it. So there's almost an intellectual question, then there's the nuts and bolts of, right, like how do you define it? I think that the most important thing for me is change on the ground, and I think a big part of this, to be honest, is changing attitudes I think if, if, it, if that was all it took, I would be the first to say, yes, I think it's more complicated than that, I'm afraid. And this is about people who have opportunity already, realising it needs to be spread to more people. And there's an awful lot that needs to change in Britain. If you could spend your way to a socially mobile Britain, and that was all it took, if you could legislate your way to it, I'd have had a good go at doing that. I left Parliament because actually my conclusion was... The politics was getting in the way of driving change and therefore I needed to work across party and I needed to work outside in society and with businesses and that's how I was going to get change and I think at some stage yes you probably then need to come back to the legislative agenda and say right how can this enable everything to get further faster and I think this is a podcast that should be continued And a second half at some point on my next return to Southampton. Well there's an offer.
3: Justine, you've been a great guest. Thank you for your time today.
0: I've loved it and I think it's brilliant that you're doing the class ceiling podcast. Excellent. The Class
2: Ceiling Podcast.
1: Smashing the Class (laughs) Ceiling.